So the Sermon on the Mount is Christianity's answer to the question, how do we flourish? In other words, how do we really live and make the most of life? That is what Jesus is addressing in this sermon. And the answer in our passage today is prayer. Prayer is essential to your flourishing. Prayer matters. Prayer is like drawing a breath with your spiritual lungs and inhaling the love and grace of God. I love the opening sentence of Pete Gregg's new book, How to Pray, A Simple Guide for Normal People. It it goes like this. When one of our sons heard that I was writing a book about how to pray, he said, oh, but that's easy. You just say, dear God, chat to him for a bit, and then say, amen. And Greg goes on to say, in a way, he was right. Sometimes we make prayer way more complicated than it needs to be. And it's true. Prayer can be as simple as breathing, but Jesus knows that religious people have an uncanny ability to suck the life out of prayer or to set the bar so high that the average person feels like they have absolutely no idea how to pray or they can't pray well enough, so they might as well let the experts do it for them. But in our passage, Jesus wants us to take a breath and breathe out all of the pressure that can build up around prayer. Let it evaporate. Because prayer in the kingdom of heaven is simple. You don't have to find the right words. You don't have to put on a show. You don't have to uh, say everything correctly. A faithful and quiet amen may be more profound than a thousand words uttered before God. Because prayer is simply a child coming to their father. And perhaps you're not sure you see the value of prayer. You're not persuaded it's essential to the good life, to the flourishing life. And so I want to invite you, if that's the case, to press in and consider why prayer is vital to having that abundant life. And so I have three points I want to make from our passage this morning. The first is the motive of prayer. Second, the posture of prayer. And third, the invitation of prayer. So motive, posture, invitation. If you have a Bible, open it up to Matthew chapter 6. Everything's going to be on the screen behind me. If you don't own a Bible, please take one of our great church Bibles home with you. Jesus says, When you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners, that they may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your father who's in secret. And your father who sees in secret will reward you. So our first point, the motive of prayer. So we need to remember that in this section of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is still developing a thought he shared in verse 1. Be careful not to practice your righteousness or your right living in front of others in order to be seen by them. For if you do, you'll have no reward from your Father in heaven. Jesus is still hashing out this thought. He is still in the middle of a sustained critique against religious practice becoming a show and therefore becoming a farce. And Jesus has already called out um, how wrong motives can deform why we give to the poor. And now Jesus shows us how wrong motives can deform the way we pray. You see, Jesus, he's deeply concerned about the motives of our heart. He doesn't want us to just play a religious part. He wants a whole becoming. He wants us to live 
a whole life congruent outside and in. But when Jesus tells his audience, you know, that they're to pray privately and in secret, he's not excluding all forms of public prayer. His concern is about motive, not about place. We need to see this. His concern is about motive, not about place. You know, this passage doesn't mean that praying in public is always wrong. You know, a staunchly literal reading would say that all of the prayers in this service so far are just completely inappropriate. But that's not the case. That's not what Jesus is getting at here. He's concerned about the motives someone has when they stand up to pray in front of others in a public way. And just like his previous example before about the poor, Jesus is addressing the hypocrite, the person who plays a religious part, who puts on a religious show, but it's all an act. You know, they put on a mask, they appear to be spiritual, they do all the right spiritual activities, but they do it from the wrong motive. A desire to be praised by others, a desire to appear holy and right. And in this case, the person who prays in public, whether in a place of worship or the street corner, are praying to be seen by others. So if you pray out of misguided motives, Jesus says you're going to get what you want. If you're praying just to get the praise of others, they will see you, they will praise you, they'll think you're holy, and you get your reward. We can try to imagine it like this. Let's say you sign up to serve on prayers of the people. And so your turn comes on a Sunday and you stand on stage to lead our community in prayer. But the question is why? Why are you leading us in prayer? Now, perhaps you delight in praying on our behalf to God. You delight in drawing near to God and, and praying on our behalf, and that would be good. But there's, is there any part of you that likes having a valuable role in the service? Is there any part of you that actually likes being on stage and being seen? Part of you that craves that position of influence? Now, we don't know the motives of your heart. That's why we schedule people who ask to be scheduled. But God does. God knows your motives. And that's what Jesus wants us to understand. That's the point. God sees the motives behind everything we do. And for those of us whose motives are mixed at best or nefarious at worst, Jesus suggests trying the polar opposite. If you like to pray in public, instead, go in private, where there's no fanfare, no one listening, no other soul listening, and there, pray. In private and in secret, draw near to your Father and speak directly to him with no other ears around. And there's a bit of a genius to what Jesus is doing here. Because if the only motivation you have for prayer is to appear holy or to have praise from other people, when there's no other ears around to hear your prayers, it's likely then that your prayers will stop. Because you're not actually committed to prayer, you're committed to performance. Your delight is not in speaking with God. Your delight is in appearing a certain way before others. And that's what Jesus is pressing us to consider. What motivates you when you pray? And perhaps you don't do it for the praise of others. That's pro probably true of many of us. But there's still other problematic motives that can be at work when we pray. I want you to use just one modern example. 
Uh, scientists have found that the brains of people who spend untold hours in prayer or meditation are different. They've done MRI scans and observed people in prayer and meditation. And one researcher says that these people are rewiring the neural connections in their brains and it alters, as a result, the way they see the world. And it turns out there's measurable benefit to prayer and meditation. It's fascinating stuff. But perhaps then you pray because the neuroscience shows how it has positive benefits. And while it's interesting to consider how God has hardwired us as humans to benefit from activities like prayer and meditation, doing these things for their benefit is not the motivation that God is calling us to. You see, you could be really religious or spiritual, contemplative and meditative. You could be full of prayer and discipline, but do you do it primarily for your own self-development? Is that your motivation? Have you embraced mindfulness and contemplation and prayer, but mostly to improve your sense of peace and contentment? You see, if that's the case, then your motive is self-benefit. And that's not entirely bad, but it's a very different motive than drawing near to God in prayer to be with God. And that's what Jesus wants us to consider. Can we be motivated by a better reward? Can we be motivated simply by enjoying God's presence and having his attention? Now I want to go to our second point, the, the posture of prayer. Jesus continues in verse 7 through 8. When you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. Just as Jesus is not forbidding public prayer, neither is Jesus forbidding long prayer, though if we're honest, in some cases, we wish he would. No? Just me? Okay. I'm going to pray really long after this sermon. Jesus himself, he prayed long prayers. Right? Look at John 17. That is a long prayer. Clearly, he's not against length. You see, Jesus is still critiquing the motives that can be at work in prayer. And in this verse, he is critiquing a common posture people take in prayer. He's concerned uh, that our approach to prayer can sometimes be no different than the way Gentiles and their religions approach prayer and their gods. And so Jesus is clear how you pray in the kingdom of heaven should be different. But sometimes it's not because of the posture you take. Now, Jesus doesn't mean, you know, clasping your hands or unclasping your hands or having them open or in your pocket or having your eyes open or closed or standing or kneeling. He's not concerned about physical posture, although posture can help us focus our hearts. That's the place Jesus is fundamentally concerned about, our hearts. What is the posture of your heart toward God in prayer? How do you envision God receiving your prayers? And it matters because it changes how you pray. Consider 1 Kings 18. There, the prophets of Baal are having a battle with the prophet Elijah. And for a half day, they simply pray, Oh, Baal, hear us. Oh, Baal, hear us. And on and on. And Baal does not answer. And so Elijah provokes them. He says, well, maybe he's sleeping. Try a little harder. And it unravels into a religious frenzy. 
Or in Acts 19, we read about the Ephesian mob for two whole hours. They just kept chanting, great is Diana of Ephesus. You know, there's examples in other religions where devotees repeat a single syllable for hours on end. Or they run around in circles until they drive themselves to altered mental states and finally fall down in total exhaustion. You know, ritualistic prayer, magical incantations, repeated phrases, stirring yourself into a religious frenzy or hype. These were commonplace practices in other religions, but they were united by a common posture. And here's the posture. There's something we have to do. We have to get it right in order to get the God's attention. We have to find the right formula to extract what we want out of the gods because the gods are disinterested and we have to arouse their attention. And this is not the posture Jesus wants us to take. So what is the posture we should take toward God in prayer? Do you think you have to impress God to get his attention? Someone shook their head. Great. When you think that God isn't interested or he's not really listening, it makes prayer really difficult. And if you do pray and you think God isn't really interested, it changes the way you pray. Immediately, you feel like you have to get something right. But not so with your heavenly father, says Jesus. He is a good father who readily listens to your prayers. And so when you approach God from a posture of believing that he hears you and wants to listen to you, it changes the way you pray. You don't have to find the right formula. You don't have to pray for a certain amount of time. You don't have to tack on in Jesus' name just because that somehow makes the prayer work. The Benedictine monk, uh, Brother Luigi uh, Gioia, he teaches at uh, the university in Rome. And when it comes to prayer, he says there's three things, three simple things. Keep it honest, keep it simple, keep it going. Keep it honest, keep it simple, keep it going. And I love the way he talks about being honest in prayer. Here's what he says. We often think we have to be in a certain mood to pray. Check. So before starting to pray, we have to be peaceful, we have to be joyful, or we have to be enthusiastic about the Lord. The reality is that most of the time we are in completely different moods. So we're either worried, or we are tired, or we're frustrated about something, or we're angry about something. The secret is to realize that each one of these feelings, even the most negative one, even anger, and even lust, can become a fuel to pray. It can be transformed into prayer. When I start to pray, I just focus on what is the dominant feeling in my heart. If it's a positive feeling, such as joy, I offer that joy to the Lord. If it's a negative feeling, like frustration or tiredness, I start from there and I say to the Lord, I'm tired or I'm frustrated. And I express these things to the Lord and transform them into prayer. Keep it honest. Anne Lamott is a well-known Christian writer who's written on prayer, and she goes as far as to say that there's only really three types of prayer. Help me, Jesus. Help me, Jesus. Help me, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Wow, Jesus. Wow, Jesus. Wow, Jesus. That's it. In other words, when we pray, we're usually either asking for help, giving thanks, or expressing awe and adoration. 
we're asking God for forgiveness or for him to meet us in a relational conflict or something, or we're giving God thanks for gifts we've perceived in our day or for the breath that we have in our lungs, or we're expressing awe over what God has made in creation or a way he's moved in our lives. But at the end of the day, she says, when you boil it all down, there's really only three types of ways to pray. Thank you. Help me. Wow. Keep it simple. Keep it honest. Keep it simple. I once heard a friend describe prayer uh, as curling up onto her father's lap. I've always liked that image. She said it gives her permission to keep praying throughout the day because she's never more than a moment away from her father's presence and comfort. Similar to what A.W. Tozer said. He said, there's no place on earth where you're actually geographically closer to God. It's only a matter of attention that keeps you distance from his presence. So at any moment, you can turn to the presence of your heavenly father. Keep it honest, keep it simple, keep it going. God is with you. He's not far away. You see, when you know God is your father who loves you, who who pays attention to you, who listens to you, who will answer your prayers, it changes how you pray. And so we don't have to try to persuade or manipulate a reluctant God. God is a good father who listens to us. And there's no formula then to figure out. There's no skill to master. There's just a father who's ready to listen. So our last point, the invitation to pray. The invitation of prayer is the paradox of verse 8. Do not be like them, for your father knows what you need before you ask him. Your father knows what you need before you ask him. You see, Jesus wants his disciples to keep a certain perspective when it comes to prayer. He wants them to remember that your father knows what you need before you draw near to him. Which usually results in someone saying, well, why ask it all then? If God knows, why bother telling him what he already knows? Let's think about that. Let's press into that. In the Garden of Eden, after Adam and Eve ate of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, they became aware in a new way. They had a sober assessment of themselves. They could see their own nudity, so they made makeshift clothing and they hid from God. Genesis describes it like this. They heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? Where are you? It's not like Adam and Eve excelled at hide and seek. That's not what's happening here. It's not like the all-knowing God misplaced his children. God could have said, I know where you are. He could have caused every tree to evaporate and said, there you are. Why are you hiding? But that's not what God does. Instead, God asks a question that he already knows the answer to, but he asks, where are you? God knows their temporal distance. He knows where they are. He knows geographically what's going on, but he feels the relational distance. And he invites them back into his presence. Where are you? You see, God asks for the sake of relationship. 
He asks to create a way back into his presence. And it's similar for us in prayer. Even though God already knows what we need, we ask for the sake of relationship. Prayer is our response to God's pursuit of us. And when we pray, we're pressing into relationship and not just requests. When we pray, we're pressing into relationship and not just requests. You see, the fact that God knows what we are going to need or ask for before we ask isn't meant to kill our motive to prayer, to pray. It's supposed to build one. It's meant to transform how we pray. The point Jesus is pressing home again and again in this passage is we don't have to wave our hands like I just did to get God's attention. We don't have to waste our time trying to persuade him to do what we want. Because as Jesus stresses throughout the Sermon on the Mount and throughout the Gospels, God is our Father. God is our Father. And when you know that, it changes how you pray. And this was a revolutionary perspective in ancient Judaism. This was not how people were accustomed to envisioning God. But Jesus wants this perspective to be rooted in our souls. He wants it to be anchored in our bones. In fact, that the tradition of the early church was to say in Aramaic, Abba, Father. It was this intimate way of addressing God as Father. And I understand for some of you, imagining God as a Father is not a comforting thing. Perhaps you didn't have a good Father. Perhaps even the word Father evokes pain. And I don't want to diminish that. But I also want you to know, you don't have to have a good father in order to understand God as your father. Because even the best fathers on earth are poor examples compared to the goodness of our heavenly father. You can discover a positive image of father through the scriptures and through the way God has revealed himself to you. And he wants to meet you in those wounds that you may carry around the image of a father. But Jesus insists that God is our Father and that as a Father, He is more ready to answer than we are to pray. That as a Father, His gifts and grace don't have to be unwillingly extracted from Him. We don't have to try to pester or batter God into answering our prayers because He's a Father who cares, who pursues, and who invites a deepening relationship with us. But we do need to show up. We need to respond to the God who asks, Where are you? God has never ceased to pursue us. He's never ceased to pursue you. What began in Eden continued in the appearing of Jesus Christ. God sent his son into the world because he loves us and wants to pursue us and bring his wayward children home. And Jesus came into the world for the purpose of reconciling us to God the Father so that we can be adopted into his family through his death and resurrection. That's God's pursuit of us. He wants to bring you back home. He wants you to have your place at this table of undeserving friends. God's never ceased to pursue us. He's never ceased to pursue you. And he's never stopped asking, where are you? Where are you? What causes you to withdraw from prayer? Is it shame? How could I draw near to God? Something's wrong with me. Why do I keep doing these things? God couldn't possibly welcome me in his presence. Is it fear? Because you know what you've done and you know God is right and holy and you fear his judgment. 
It's a disinterest. Because your image of God is maybe too small. That maybe you see God as petty or unpredictable rather than beautiful and glorious. Where are you? What causes you to withdraw and retreat from prayer rather than press in? You see, God already sees you. He knows if your heart is rattled with shame or guilt or fear or disinterest. He sees all of that. And he wants to be involved in all of that with you. He wants to heal those things in you. And so he says, where are you? And prayer is our way of saying, here I am, Lord. Here I am. Before you, all things are known. You know what I need. I don't always even know what I need. So here I am, Lord. And all you have to do is keep it honest and keep it simple and keep it going. All you have to do is learn how to ask for help or give thanks or say, wow, all this is is a child drawing near to their father. And Jesus says we can discover a better motivation to pray. You don't have to pray for approval. You don't have to pray because that's a spiritual thing to do. You don't even have to pray because there's physical benefits. Jesus wants us to pray because we're motivated, but God is our Father who delights in us, who loves us, who desires us, who wants to be with us. You see, the reward of praying in secret, the way Jesus is describing, is not what we can get out of God. It's that we get God. The reward is the Father. God is willing to listen to you. He's ready to listen to you. He's eager to share his presence with you when you seek after his presence. The question is, will you show up? Will you say, here I am? When God asks you, where are you? 